Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, art and society. Today's episode is a recording of our recent event, Prospect Talks, Can Europe Keep the Lights On Without Russia?, where we heard from experts on energy and the global economy, as well as from our chair, editor of Prospect magazine, Alan Rusbridger. With war raging in Ukraine, EU countries continue to send an estimated billion euros every day to Russia in payment for oil and gas imports. This money is funding Vladimir Putin's war machine, but so far, the EU has failed to impose a total energy embargo. Europe faces a choice, continue to pay Russia for energy, which threatens EU security, or find alternative ways to keep energy supplies flowing without impacting their economies. Our speakers were Vicky Price, former Joint Head of the UK Government Economic Service, Andrew Sims, political economist and co-author of the Green New Deal, and Miles Allen, a Professor of Geosystem Science at the University of Oxford. I hope you enjoy their insights on this vital question. The music you've just heard is an extract from the Prelude of Bach Suite No. 1 in G Major, played by Isabel Austin. I'm going to introduce um, our, our three panelists tonight, and it's a really wonderful panel. I, I think they, they should balance um, each other rather well, at least from their comparing notes for about two minutes uh, beforehand. One, I think, is going to tend towards a more optimistic view, uh, one perhaps to a more pessimistic view, and one to what they might think of as a more realistic view. I'll leave you to discuss, uh, to discover yourselves, which you think is each. Um, starting with Andrew Sims, who I'm going to ask to speak first, who is uh, an author, a political campaigner, economist. I've counted up to 10 books that you've written, but, but maybe those are just ones that I know about. Andrew. Thank you very much. Well, I'm going to characterize my position straight away as being that old motif, one of the optimism of the will and pessimism of the mind. I'm going to start by saying a couple of things which um, maybe are obvious, but I've, I've learned over time that it's easy to not say the obvious thing and that it's ridiculous that it's taken a war for us to get to this point to ask this question. As we sit here at the moment, India and Pakistan are sweltering in an unseasonal and lethal heat wave. The UK Met Office 
has just warned us that we could break the Paris climate target of 1.5 degrees in four years' time. And just year in, year out, there's somewhere between eight and nine million people a year die prematurely because of the air pollution that comes from the burning of fossil fuels. So it's not just a case of Europe getting off Russian oil and gas, but getting off all oil and gas as quickly as we possibly can. And that is our challenge. Um, and the question that we've been posed this evening looks a bit like a technical problem. Um, but I'm going to argue that in an important sense, it isn't. It was Gertrude Bell way back in 1921 who said, oil is the trouble, of course, detestable stuff. Um, and it's the real problem, I think, is one of choosing to act because it's quite extraordinary what happens when we do choose to act. However big this challenge seems before us, if we go back to the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, the idea that great swathes of the banking system could or would be taken into public ownership would have been dismissed as absurd, as would the idea of large-scale public money creation, thinly disguised as QE. And then both happened. We just had to do it. The idea in 2010, before an obscure volcano erupted in Iceland, that you could ground the whole of Europe and live without short-haul flights um, across the continent might have, been seen, might have seemed absurd. But then it happened and we had to adapt. We found workarounds. We just had to do it. And before the pandemic struck, uh, who would have even dreamed that virtually overnight the UK would see a switch to mass home working with commuting and business flying becoming almost a thing of the past and streets redesigned for pedestrians and cyclists and cars left in the garage. Huge changes in behavior, in policy, in structures and in infrastructure things that we just had to do. And, and actually looking at where we are tonight with this particular question, have we used some of the money that I would argue that through QE was sort of frittered away and ended up inflating luxury asset prices? Had that instead been directly invested in our low carbon transition at a humble 50 billion a year, we'd be in a much better position right now than we actually are. But the point is, there are no shortage of plans to make this transition happen. The first Zero Carbon Britain plan was published in 2007. We published the Green New Deal in 2008. There's lots of practical learning from attempts to do rapid retrofit programs. And we know through excellent scenario work by, for example, Mark um, Jacobson at Stanford University, that we can make these rapid transitions away from fossil fuels in ways which bring in immeasurable co-benefits in terms of health and quality of life. Now, just specifically to round up on this question, so the EU has a plan to cut Russian gas imports by two-thirds this year. Poland's Economic Institute reckon we could do 90%. Um, even Germany, one of the most exposed um, countries, there, there are studies suggesting that it could be done in such a way that limits any negative effects and cushions the social impact. The IEA has published two plans, one for getting off oil, one for getting off gas. You read the gas one, and it's like the Green Party manifestos of the last 25 years. It's, okay, let's work from home, let's switch to public transport, you know, let's stop flying around the world, all things that we might have wanted to do any, anyway. E3G published a report for the UK specifically saying that we could get, you know, make 80% cuts this year. So what's stopping us? I think it's a failure of belief 
in the practical possibilities of rapid transition. I would have to say also it's perhaps an inconsistent and somewhat incompetent administration in the UK that set up the renewable industries that could have made some of these changes and then pulled the, royal, the rug from under their feet in such a way that destroyed economic confidence. But if we look to history, if we look to things that have happened in this country, the switch to home indoor plumbing happened in a couple of decades. In eight years, we switched our fuel supply from town gas to natural gas. 40 million appliances, 17 million homes. It's almost forgotten about. But where there's boldness and ambition and coordination and a commitment to a, a sense of purpose, extraordinary things can happen. And if we want to look at some practical examples of what of where it's already beginning to happen in very exposed countries, the Dutch, their plan to switch to heat pumps, the Finnish, a really cold country, have made extraordinary moves to get off fossil fuels and go down the renewables route. So we need to stop normalizing the high carbon lifestyles and the promotion of products, which we see all around us at the moment, so that we can shift the cultural environment, which makes the political decisions that much easier to make. And ultimately, I'd say we've got to replace the discourses of delay that we've been surrounded with, with a discourse of, well, basically getting up your ass and doing something, a discourse of accelerated change. So there are, of course, lots of technical questions, but these, I believe, can be overcome if we approach it with the commitment and the sense of purpose, which we should have been doing ever since the oil companies knew that the burning of fossil fuels was going to fundamentally change the atmosphere way back in the late 1970s. And I'll wrap up there. Fantastic. Well, um, so uh, Andrew's given away his position. Um, Miles, I'm going to ask you to come second. Yes, so I'm going to suggest a different way of responding to, to the crisis we're facing uh, because I think it, teach, it does teach us something about what we've been doing wrong over the past 20 years. Um, but I, I'm not convinced that the right lessons are being drawn at the moment. So um, first of all, we obviously need to stop global warming as soon as possible, as much for the people of Ukraine as anyone else. I mean, the 2010 heat wave in that region killed over 55,000 people, that's more than the war so far, devastated the Ukrainian wheat crop, caused a global food crisis, and was made substantially more likely by past greenhouse gas emissions. So we, we have to stop global warming. That's, that's a starting point. But how and who the we is here in this conversation, I think we do need to talk about. Um, just to remind you, um, a small number of large companies have reported their quarterly profits recently. If you add up these profits in terms of dollars per tonne of carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere, they sort of tidily equate to roughly what it would cost to stop global warming. And yet we're not talking about the problem that way. We're saying we need to encourage the renewable energy industry, meaning we the UK government and taxpayers, we need to insulate our homes better. We need to do lots and lots of things. We don't really have the resources to do it. The resources are out there. They're not in the UK taxpayers' pocket at the moment. So we need to look at, I think the Ukraine war does give us an opportunity to look at what we've been getting wrong and think about how we can do much better in the future. The center, we, we, we've spent the past 20 years trying to make climate policy as cheap and as painless as possible. And as a result, have achieved neither. 
we've created a sort of Heath Robinson construction of levers and balances, which falls down in a heap at the first crisis. And it is falling down in a heap with the Ukraine war, um, as we're busy switching coal-fired power stations back on across Europe. Um, and the UK government is busy designing a climate compatibility test to give them an excuse to license the Cambo oil field. That's not going to get switched off again when the Ukrainian crisis passes. So we need to, to look at what we're doing and ask ourselves, you know, the centerpiece of this policy has been to identify these cheap and painless ways of reducing emissions using essentially carbon pricing. The European emission trading system, it's been right at the heart of European climate policy and UK climate policy, and you know, will continue to be so going forwards. That's what everybody wants to use to drive down emissions. What it's done has been to drive the, the, the main achievement of the emission trading system has been to drive a wholesale switch from domestic coal to Russian natural gas. How much global warming this has avoided is unclear, given the amount of methane that leaks in Russia before it arrives in Europe, how much of the natural gas just leaks out in Siberia before we actually get it, probably causes as much warming as is, as is saved by burning natural gas in place of coal. So how much global warming the ECS has achieved by encouraging the European power sectors to switch from coal to gas is far from clear. But of course, those emissions are happening in Russia. So they're not our problem. They're, they're Russia's problem. Because that's the way we think about the climate issue. We've got Europe has got to get its own emissions down because that's what we want to do. And it doesn't really matter what happens in the rest of the world. Well, of course, that's ridiculous. Global warming is caused by global emissions. So we, we're in a situation where we've got a centerpiece policy that may not have actually stopped any global warming at all um, and has caused us to move wholesale from domestic coal. I mean, it seemed like a very good idea 20 years ago. Gas created um, less than half the CO2 as coal per ton per megawatt hour uh, generated. Um, George W. Bush looked into Putin's eyes and found him straightforward and trustworthy. What could possibly go wrong? Well, 20 years on, the cost of fully decarbonizing the European coal-fired power sector, so fitting capture technology on every power station and re-injecting that carbon dioxide back under the North Sea, including the costs of mine, including capturing and recapturing from the atmosphere CO2 associated with any fugitive emissions and mining and transport, would be less than the price differential between coal and gas today. So we're paying more for a product that causes just as much global warming, and we're not actually stopping fossil fuels from causing global warming at all. So we have to think about the problem in a different way, which means thinking about it, simplifying climate policy, moving away from this Heath Robinson approach to actually addressing the fundamental cause of the problem. We have to stop fossil fuels themselves from causing global warming. And that's actually a very different challenge to the one you've been hearing about. Because to stop a fossil fuel from causing global warming, there's only one thing you need to do. You need to get rid of the CO2 it generates and not dump it in the atmosphere. That's what it takes. But we haven't been focusing on doing that. Instead, we've been pricing fossil fuels to sort of move them around into different countries 
or different jurisdictions or, or, or getting things manufactured in China rather than Europe so that we don't take responsibility for the emissions. No, we need to take responsibility for stopping fossil fuels themselves from causing global warming and the institution that has the capacity, the cash flow, the engineering capability, the access to capital to do that is the fossil fuel industry itself. So the solution to this problem is actually extremely simple. It already exists in European legislation. It's called the principle of extended producer responsibility. If you buy any household chemical in France, the person selling you that chemical has the responsibility to dispose safely and permanently of all the waste generated by that chemical unless the chemical happens to be a hydrocarbon fuel. Why? Why that exception? If we were to impose the principle of extended producer responsibility onto all producers and importers of fossil fuels into Europe, we would make fossil fuels more expensive. We'd add about 50 pence to the cost of a litre of petrol or five pence to the cost of a kilowatt hour of natural gas. That's less than those prices have gone up in the past six months. And we've got 30 years to do it. Why is this a problem? The problem is we're just not thinking about the problem in that way. We're thinking about this as a social problem, as a collective action problem, as a let's redesign our cities problem, rather than a just let's fix the product. By decarbonizing four products, coal, oil, natural gas, and cement, we stop global warming. And the people making money from selling those products should have a very clear responsibility to do so. If we learn from the lessons from this to require producers and importers of, of, of fossil fuels to stop the products they sell from causing global warming, we will get ourselves on a path to net zero. If we don't, we won't. It's as simple as that. And they've got the resources to do so. And if we do stop fossil fuels from causing global warming, I'm not going to promise you that we won't have lots of energy crises in the future. Um, we probably will. Europe's energy planners and politicians will no doubt get themselves up and tangled up on, 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 on where they're going to get energy from in the future. But at least they won't have to worry about the environmental impact of the products that we're importing into Europe um, and burning here. So that's, for me, the single most important thing we can learn from this is to actually recognize that effective climate policy has to be simple climate policy that focuses straight to the root of the problem. Remember, we didn't save the ozone layer by rationing deodorant or changing consumer attitudes to personal hygiene. I'll leave you with that thought. <laughs> um, thank you, Miles. That was more optimistic than I thought it was going to be. Um, Vicky. Thank you. Of course, I, I don't disagree with, with either uh, presentations, but I thought I'd focus a little bit on the actual question as to how will Europe survive without Russian energy? Uh, because, of course, what has happened in the last few months is that we've moved from all those ambitions, what well, perhaps is still there for the longer term, in terms of net zero, Europe had quite an ambitious plan, in fact, much more ambitious than the UK, and a lot more money behind it, the 55 one. And, uh, and of course, it's been trying to tighten some of the requirements for renewables to come a lot earlier than it had originally anticipated, plus increasing the percentage generally that it was expecting to come from renewables in, uh, in the 2030s. Um, but of course, then we had the war in Ukraine. And the emphasis seems to have moved 
temporarily at any rate, and of course we all agree that we need to do something about the climate and that, that goes without saying, uh, but the emphasis has moved to energy security. So it's almost as if in energy security has become the new net zero temporarily. And that's where all the focus seems to be. And if you look at quite a lot of the actions of the Europeans, I mean, you talked about um, the, the carbon price and, of course, the way that uh, it, the um, trading scheme works for emissions, the emissions trading scheme in Europe. We have one here in the UK as well. Strangely enough, the carbon price here is, slightly, is higher. Uh, but there is already a push to exclude a number of sectors that were going to be in the ETS for the time being. And quite a big push, in fact, uh, at that. But even slightly before the Ukraine crisis, the, the EU had decided that in order to meet some of its targets, it had to rethink the taxonomy of what is green, in inverted commas. And that taxonomy includes now nuclear and gas. You mentioned gas. Because, of course, it's quite clear that the transition to this wonderful environment we're going to have eventually with all these things actually happening, uh, is requiring both nuclear and gas to be there for some time. And nuclear, of course, once you, you build your plant, it can stay there for a very long period of time. And you talked about sort of decommissioning, if you like, whatever it is that is, is inheriting those products. I mean, that's a huge expense, which is going to keep us probably awake at night for quite some time because of the dangers involved in that. Uh, at any rate. So there's been a compromise already. There was a compromise already uh, before the Ukraine crisis. To, and there were, why? Because France has nuclear and because Germany at the time was so relying on cheap gas. And the way in which you could argue German GDP has done so well in the last few decades is by relying quite extensively on cheap Russian gas and uh, eventually, of course, giving up on nuclear. Yes, some subsidies for some renewables, but nothing major. Yes, okay, solar, quite a lot of it, but also step back from some of that and deciding that the cheapest way of, of having you know, a competitive position was to have very, very cheap energy for which it would do nothing in terms of its infrastructure to get there. And of course, France had a, a vested interest in trying and sell their nuclear ideas to uh, places like the UK uh, and of course, using nuclear in the future as well, because as we know, it supplies something like 70% of its electricity needs. So you already had, therefore, uh, moves being, being you know, started in Europe, which would have kept us, which do still, I'm afraid, keep us with bits of the old structure in terms of where our, our energy comes from, still quite intact. If anything, reinforcing it. Of course, then we had the shock. So what's happening now? I mean, first of all, the EU ETS that I already mentioned in terms of what you include in there, you know, do you have aviation in there and so on, uh, which of, or shipping, of course, which is a very big part of this whole business. Um, and then you have all the scaling back uh, of the attempts to put a lot more money into renewables in the short term. I mean, look what's happening in Europe. We're saying here, let's take away the bit in our electricity bills, which goes to the renewables, about 25% of, of what we charged. Well, they've already been reducing them in Germany. In fact, they cut them a few months ago and now in half, and now the, the German parliament has voted to abolish that charge for, uh, for, renew, for green electricity completely. Oh, for the time being, at any rate. So we see what happens later. 
So there's a serious short-term issue which is going to set us back quite considerably. And of course, you know, I'd like to be an optimist uh, on this, but for the moment we are retreating. And it's there's a lot more, of course, uh, that's going on right now. Uh, what are we doing to replace the the gas and oil, mainly, of course, uh, you know, the gas for the time being from um, Russia? We are importing a lot of LNG, huge amounts actually, and now going and coming to Europe. Uh, Draghi in Italy's wandering around trying to get deals. Uh, from the northern African countries, but it's also trying to get more oil from uh, the, the Middle East. Uh, Boris Johnson himself had gone to Saudi to try and get a bit more oil, and then, of course, he's probably given up because OPEC isn't quite responding and has decided to keep licenses for new, for new uh, fields. Um, so we've had uh, you know, quite a lot of that going on, and also quite a lot of other countries. You mentioned the Netherlands. They are reducing VAT on... Uh, a couple of countries are reducing VAT on uh, bills as well, uh, and uh, in fact, basically subsidizing the, the consumer. So the consumer continues to ask for quite a lot of energy, and of course, a lot of it is uh, put together with you know, using fossil fuels rather than renewables. So there is no doubt in my mind that we're stepping back, and you've seen what's been going on in Germany in terms of resisting um, the, the, the embargo on gas imports from Russia. And they've been pretty vociferous at that so far. The European Commission has put a plan, of course, to stop oil imports from Russia by the middle of the year and crude products, petroleum products, by uh, the second half of the year sometime, phased in. A number of countries are screaming, so we're already seeing... Hungary vetoing it, we're seeing Bulgaria in difficulty, we've seen Slovakia also wanting extra help, we've seen in fact offers by uh, the other countries to pay all those who are going to be uh, missing out on, on Russian gas and oil possibly to compensate them for, for it. But there are some big refineries which depend on Russian gas, there are whole communities that depend on the growth on this and there are now estimates uh, in Germany, which suggests that uh, and if you're lucky, if there is an oil embargo anyway, there will be a slowdown in growth. And we're already seeing recession in a number of countries. We've seen the fall in GDP in the first quarter in Italy, uh, for example. We've seen flat growth in France. Of course, we've seen a little bit of growth here, but a drop in GDP in March. We've seen, strangely enough, even though the US is self-sufficient in energy, uh, we've seen a drop in US GDP. So we can't discount the impact on individuals this will have and, and the concerns that Germany and others have in terms of acting more decisively in that way. Now, are we going to end up with a lot more effort on renewables? Because if energy security is the issue, then renewables are domestic to a very considerable extent. You know, solar, there's loads and loads of news about how, you know, there's new... Uh, investment happening in various places, but actually in terms of making up for the loss, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult because it is really worth bearing in mind that uh, if anything in the last few years we moved in the wrong direction. If you look at uh, imports of gas from uh, into Europe, uh, the, the percentage of, of the energy that comes from abroad, from outside Europe, has increased. It's now something like 65%. Uh, and 
Uh, and if you look at individual countries as well, this, this, this picture doesn't look particularly good. And if you look at the way in which, despite all the efforts, despite everything we've all been talking about, um, the, the actual consumption of energy in Europe has changed. Of course, oil has come down in the last you know, 50 years, 70 years. So if you look at 65 and you look at it now, I mean, oil used to be something like half of all the energy consumption. Coal used to be about half as well. Now, of course, that's come down, but oil is still something like 36%, if I remember correctly. You have renewables still, I'm afraid, below 20. You have nuclear just over 10, maybe 10, 15%. You still have coal, uh, which is somewhere around 15%. And what's going on right now is that, in fact, coal production is increasing, coal imports into individual countries is increasing. There's a lot of sharing of, of that forced by the, by, by the Commission of the Europeans uh, so that you, you don't have shortages in individual areas. I mean, Germany has been worried about uh, having rationing of gas, rationing of petrol. Uh, so all those elements are out there. We suggest that certainly in the short to medium term, unless the wars end suddenly and everything changes, we will have moved backwards, which means that all these efforts that we need to make are going to cost an awful lot more, going to take longer to happen. And we may need to think very aggressively right now about a new technological solution, because where we are now isn't going to get us to where to the sunny uplands we want to get to. Thank you, Vicky. Um, well, there, there are three three sort of opening positions, um, perhaps tinging a bit more to the pessimistic than than uh, I've been hoping. But Miles, can I just start with you? I mean, you, you you say your your proposal for making the polluter pay would add about fifty p to the liter of petrol, and you say why is this a problem? I mean. Uh, we can see what the problem is, can't there's a, there's a massive political problem and consumers who have not been prepared for that in any way. How, how do you surmount that problem? How do you get around that problem? Well, it, it, it's not actually that clear who would pay it. Right now, um, almost all of the money we spend on fossil fuels is pure rent. It goes to whoever owns the fossil fuels, it comes out of the ground, often Vladimir Putin um, or France. Um, I mean, you know, the, Russia is doing very well out of current high oil prices. Saudi Arabia is doing even better. The UK Treasury is doing pretty well out of royalties on North Sea gas. Um, so the, the cost of stopping those fuels from causing global warming is less than the prices have gone up between last year and this year. So you've got to ask yourself, if we required those companies to get rid of the CO2 generated by the products they sell, would they simply stop selling them? Or would they just accept the profits they were making last year and sell them for the same price they're selling them today? I don't know. They were making plenty of money last year. They're making even more ridiculous amounts of money this year. But it's not at all obvious in the long term that the cost of dealing with the, um, the, the, the carbon dioxide these products generate would have to come out of the pockets of the consumer. Because, of course, if we invest, as we should, in more efficient use of fossil fuels and, of course, in, in alternatives so as to, to reduce demand, then they're going to need to keep prices down in order to keep selling their product. So it's not at all obvious to me over the next 30 years that actually requiring them to sort out the problem would make their products any more expensive than they are today. 
and Andrew, you 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 opened very optimistically and and uh, and talking about give, giving lots of examples of when in, in in recent history things needed to happen rapidly, they did, and you rather sort of airily said, of course, there are lots of technical questions. I mean, we've had some of the technical questions. Was there anything you've heard from from Thicky or Miles that that dented your your um, your Panglossian view of, of what could happen? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'd say, um, like I say, um, it's kind of a case of optimism of the will and pessimism of the mind. It's entirely possible to sit here and paint a very, very dark picture because both good and bad are happening simultaneously. With every year that passes recently, there are record uptakes of um, new installed renewable capacity in wind and solar, records broken every year. And yet at the same time, the very people who um, in the International Energy Agency who send out positive press releases about this also include in their scenarios assumptions about the increased use of, of fossil fuels, which will take us way beyond the, the climate target. So I think we live in a situation where it's incredibly finely balanced and the kind of interventions that we make now could tip us one way or the other. I think there is definitely a kind of a shift of mindset that's required in our approach to energy. I remember the transport debates back in the 1970s when we were locked in the mentality of predict and provide. We realized that if you built new roads, they filled up with cars and you know you still had congestion. I think where energy is concerned, we cannot solve this problem unless we look at demand reduction. Nothing, no scenario is going to work without aggressive demand reduction. Um, but the good news is, of course, that uh, in making the switch, we solve another range, a wide range of simultaneous problems. I mean, as far as I'm aware, um, no country has yet been invaded for its wind farm. When we make the strides towards retrofitting the UK's you know, 26 million homes or, or whatever, we're not just insulating ourselves from volatile energy prices. We're not just creating jobs in all the constituencies, the yet to be leveled up constituencies around the country, which are so desperately needed. We're not just solving a huge range of health problems by giving people comfortable homes to live in, in winter and in summer. Um, uh, we're solving security problems simultaneously too. So, you know, if one took a, a rational approach to, to policy, when did that ever work? I know. But nevertheless, we, the agency that we have, we have to make the arguments in its favor. And then, of course, if you want to just even make the kind of the straightforward economic arguments that the net zero plans, which are in danger, I can quite clearly see that. But you turn around and look at the modeling done by the Climate Change Committee, who make the point with gas prices likely to stay consistently high for some period. Uh, to come, meeting the net zero 2050 target in the UK is going to bring about a positive economic. I mean, it's not going to cost. And I really don't think that we can fall back on any excuses that the money is not there. The money is clearly there. It has been there. It's there. It's, it is you know, the magic money tree in one sense, whether you're talking about the, the multiplier effect you get from just straightforward public spending, um, which to a large extent pays for itself, or whether you look at the hundreds of billions uh, that sit in pension pots that have tax advantages, that could have requirements put on them to invest in our low carbon transition with all those other economic benefits. Wherever you look, there is no shortage of money. There are no shortage of, of benefits. But absolutely, yes, we could sit here and, and the because 
one of the other problems, I suppose. I mean, and I don't absolutely don't disagree with with, with Miles in terms of that. Um, if, you know, if there were a, a silver bullet solution, one of putting that you know sort of full life cycle uh, r responsibility on the oil firms, if you could follow it through. But the problem is that the oil companies and the oil interested interests themselves are are soaked like oil itself in a petrol forkle into the power structures of this country. They're on every advisory board they're you know in every corridor and there needs to be some kind of countervailing force that can deal with that otherwise the decisions will not get made and we will stay with the architecture that we've got and the discourses of delay which have held us up ever since they first knew about the problem back in the 1970s even longer ago if they actually read some of the science journals um, we will see no progress so we need some kind of mobilization which is going to address the power of the oil in interest which will flip and use this situation to try and retrench themselves still further. It's, it's boring, I know, but it does actually mean you have to get out and confront power and do all those kind of uncomfortable things about making yourself vulnerable and talking about it in that fashion. Can, uh, I, can I just chip in then? Aren't you giving up before you've even started? If you say... I'm giving up nothing. <laughs> but... but no environmental movement in the country is calling for, EP, for extended producer responsibility for the fossil fuel industry. No, mm. no one is calling for the fossil fuel industry to dispose of the carbon dioxide generated by the products they sell. In fact, if, you, if I go to Greenpeace with this proposal, they don't like it. They'd rather the fossil fuel industry simply disappears. And as a result, they're letting the fossil fuel industry entirely off the hook. And this is the reason we've got an opportunity right now is precisely because you mentioned the amount, the vast amounts of money that are sloshing around. They're dwarfed by the money which is sloshing into the fossil fuel industry right now with, with prices where they are. And that money is going where? I mean, it, it's, it's a mystery to me actually where that money is going. Um, but but it, it, it could be. Well, I would have seen they, no problem they could in be, your they proposal. They could be required to mm. start getting rid of the CO2 their products generate. And if if we did that, they would no doubt kick up a stink, but in the end, the logic of it is seems to me to be unanswerable. We don't let other companies just sell things that cause environmental harm. No, no, Why should they get? I really agree, and I think we suffer from a problem of false accounting. We did an exercise some some years ago where we looked at the social cost of carbon and applied it to the impact of you know we we applied kind of full producer responsibility to the oil companies, and it basically kind of wiped out their 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 their, 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 windfall, their windfall profits on a consistent basis. So I think if you did that, it would be um, you know at a stroke an incredible uh, move for change. The question is how do we configure a circumstance in order to achieve that? I mean, there are other structural proposals in play at the moment, like the suggestion of a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, which is a way of bringing all the major producers together and having an orderly withdrawal from continued uh, locking in of um, fossil fuel-based infrastructure and any further exploration and production. And I think at the, at the international political level, there are real challenges about how you have that kind of coordinated action. I think one of the problems about the global economy at the moment in terms of taking on these companies who are incredibly multinational is that whilst on the economic side of things, if a country um, doesn't play by the books in terms of its trade rules, there are hard-nailed ways, punitive measures that can be brought to bear where these environmental questions are concerned and regulation of companies according to labour and environmental issues like this. There is no commensurate architecture that can hold them to account. And it's a massive gap in the global um, you know, political and economic architecture. So we need the architecture that could deliver 
what you're talking about is what I would say. I mean, I think I think it's a great idea. If it could be made to work, I'd be bang up for it. Yeah, I think it's worth uh, bearing in mind that any net zero plan that exists still includes something like 20% of oil and of fossil fuels being part of the whole thing. So we're not talking, nobody's talking about eliminating them completely, except, you know, of course the IA has come and said no more investment. I mean, there's those those reserves are there, the gas and, and oil fields are there, and they can probably produce quite a lot. But we do still need them for to ensure that the rest still works all the time. Uh, and also, if you're talking right, right now about reserves that are needed for energy security, we talked about, you, you touched on security as well. Uh, in Europe, they're going to need quite a lot of gas coming from, from Russia in the short term. Of course, you can substitute the, the gas reserves with something else, but you still have in your architecture uh, an element of, of oil and gas in there in the long term. I haven't seen any anything that says you don't have them at all. There's an, there is an ad, another issue. Of course, you can do all sorts of things if you have a global carbon tax. Could I mention the example which does include the plan which completely eliminates fossil fuels and also doesn't rely upon biofuels, um, biomass, or nuclear, because the modeling which has been done um, at Stanford in the US looked at 139 countries. It did a very, very detailed plan for the US, which if any country is gonna be a test case. And there they found that for the US transitioning to a clean energy grid, um, uh, should happen by, by 2035 with about 80% of that adjustment completed by 2030. That it is feasible, it is technically, in, in terms of infrastructure, um, it's a feasible thing to do. So the models are out there. Now, whether they will ever get translated into practical plans is, is another matter. But part of the problem with a lot of the plans, I mean, the net zero plans that we have in this country, mm. you're absolutely right. They include um, appeals to technologies which are unproven, which do not exist yet and have a, a huge amount of assumed carbon capture and storage. And, what, and I think a lot of people are very critical of that. They think it's very unrealistic. But it's not to say that the, the thinking and the work hasn't been done to show how it could happen. Okay, so, so global carbon tax will, will certainly help, uh, without any doubt, in terms of you know uh, saying something about the price, which needs to be said. But also, of course, the EU had the plans, and it'll be interesting to see whether they're able to put them in place, of this uh, border carbon border adjustment mechanism where you would no longer be encouraged at all to offshore your production and that of course would affect those companies as well because basically costs would be considerably greater now whether that works or not is a different issue and whether they even implement it now and that is basically what i was saying that we seem to have gone a little bit backwards with that because nobody's talking about this right now but they may wake up to it again and uh, and accept it the, the, there is another element and we're talking about prices at the end of the day I mean, of course, you know, it's great if we have everything done domestically with all those um, renewables which are becoming cheaper and will become cheaper. You're going to need to carry on subsidizing those renewables practically forever because the marginal cost of producing an extra you know, bit of uh, electricity that you need from wind once you have it set up is zero. So uh, the only, you know, this is what happens with nuclear. That's why we had to offer such an enormously high price to get nuclear to be built, the, 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 the Hinkley uh, um, stage, power station to be built at all. And we're probably going to have to do an awful lot more of that in the future. We're probably going to have to do it if we want investment to continue in those areas. So it's not a, a sort of free lunch. Um, it is, in, in, it, in theory, it should be, 
But in practice, you just won't get this extra investment that is needed unless we as taxpayers pay an awful lot of money to make that happen. Actually, I, I'm, I don't think I was suggesting it should be a free lunch. I'm simply suggesting the richest person in the room should pay the bill. No, no. For, and, if, and, if, we, and, if we remove the richest people in... in because obviously... Well, don't let them, don't, don't leave them out of the room. Don't let them leave, go to the toilet when it's time to pay the bill. I mean, that, that's what they're doing right now. Yeah, yeah and I think it's, it's also worth kind of chipping in and thinking about, uh, if, you need, if you want to see action in the time frame which the science tells us is necessary, um, if we rely on the price mechanism, the price mechanism is vague. It can kind of nudge you in the right direction. It can't guarantee you get to a particular destination. And one of the problems with fossil fuels and, and their use by, um, because as you know, we all know that emissions disproportionately come from richer people living in li living in richer countries. And, and the problem is that the price e elasticity of high carbon activities like flying um, is such that you need an astronomical price to have a significant effect on behavior. But the other thing to remember, of course, is that the extraordinarily high levels of fossil fuel subsidies, which exist right across the board, and actually where renewables are concerned, the prices have been falling off a cliff in the last few years. So there are there is a good story to be told um, about that. And there is something to be revealed about the way in which, I mean, not only are they taking windfall profits, but they're also, the, the fossil fuel industries, they're also massively subsidised. And it, it would help also to remove those subsidies. You probably know that uh, Macron has suggested that there should be a windfall tax on renewable energy producers as well, uh, because they benefit. The way that the, the, the pool system works for the electricity pool is you, know, you get the price that is the, of the last one that's available that comes into the system, which of course needs to change. There's no doubt about that. But anyway, renewables have been doing incredibly well, even though, as I was saying, the cost, the marginal cost is zero. Uh, so he's about to put a, a put a win. He, he said he intends to put a windfall tax or considering. Windfall tax. I think it's funny. Can I just point out this is exactly the kind of Heath Robinson, you know, patching up this, patching up that, sorting out that, that has become a, a feature of climate policy because we don't, we're not actually addressing the root cause of the problem, which is why we get stuck in these absurdities all the time. Your, your solution is, is, appears to be so simple, Miles. Why do you think it hasn't happened? Who benefits from it? Not the fossil fuel industry, for sure, because it imposes an extra cost on them. Not the government, who rather enjoy us using fossil fuels, because then they get the royalties from, from um, North Sea gas and so forth. Um, not the environmental movement, because then suddenly the fossil fuel industry doesn't have to disappear. Um, not the investor. Nobody, apart, from, apart from the next generation, but one. That's the problem. I'm, I'm hoping we've got people who are dying to ask questions in the audience. Um, uh, and we just need a microphone. Well, while, while that microphone's coming back, Vicky, I mean, you obviously think we're going to go backwards before we go forwards. It looks like it at present. I mean, we're and, just observing what's going on. And that's what, what kind of time frame is, is the backward movement before? Well, I mean, we did have the, the warning from the Met Office, and I suppose we already knew that, that we've just got five years uh, to keep the temperature increase to 1.5 centigrade uh, higher. Um, and, uh, and that's going to be, you know, uh, passed without us having made any real progress. 
So, so, so basically, the next five years, I'm not going to see. I was huge. talking to a German friend the other day who said, "Well, it, you know, Germany is now wants all this liquid natural gas, but the Qataris mm -hmm. are saying, well, if you if you're going to build the terminals to receive this, we want twenty to thirty year contracts to to, to, to make that happen." Which is an ideal opportunity to say to Qatar, you've got fantastic world-class CO2 disposal capability in exactly the same geological formations that you're getting the gas out of. If we're going to buy it off you, please get rid of the CO2. Question, yeah. yeah. Um, Patrick, you're right. Well, I know how it works. It's very technical. It is on. Just speaking. Oh, yes, you're right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just wanted to ask uh, Miles about what is he talking about? Are you talking about carbon capture and storage? And if you are, when do you think that technology will be an appropriate uh, development and an appropriate scale to basically suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, as well as preventing further creation of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere? I mean, is it really a viable option? Yes, it's all fine to say, sorry, fine to say, Yes, um, the oil companies, the energy companies should be obliged by legislation, probably, that's the only way I can think of it, to uh, ensure that they don't in future produce all the carbon dioxide that is currently pouring into the atmosphere. But I can't see how that mechanism is enforced in legal, ter in legal terms, and I can't see what technology you are proposing to enable them to do that. And also, at the same time, enables us to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And that is carbon capture and storage, a technology so, which I think is well in, in its early development stage. Well, the, the, the technology has been around for decades, but nobody's had any incentive to deploy it at scale because essentially the industry has got away with um, the idea that, oh, yes, we'll do carbon capture when you pay for it. Um, and so, of course, it hasn't happened because been, the Norwegian government's been relatively generous in paying for some, but otherwise other governments have sort of understandably found themselves reluctant to chuck yet another massive bung to a rather profitable industry. So, of, of, it, you know, um, it, it, people ask me, am I in favor of carbon capture? It's a bit like asking me, am I in favor of landfill? Not particularly, I think we should minimize the amount we're putting into landfill, but it's better than fly tipping. If the alternative is fly tipping CO2 into the atmosphere, I'd rather they disposed of it properly back underground. That's, that's the equation we need to draw. The, the companies themselves are absolutely confident that they could do it. That's, that's their line. So, but of course, they're getting away with, yes, we can do this when you pay for it. They shouldn't be allowed to get away with that. It's like, yeah, you think this is going to work? Right, get on with it. 10% by 2030 should be an absolute minimum. 10% of the fossil fuels coming into Europe, either from holes in the ground or through ships or pipes from overseas, should be going back underground. They could do that without any problem whatsoever, um, but then nobody's even talking about that. The UK, with these two um, um, uh, uh, projects up in the Northeast, um, might get to 1.5%, and that's entirely cost to the taxpayer. Why? Why is the taxpayer responsible for disposing of the waste generated by a highly profitable product? It doesn't make any sense. 
And yet somehow the industry's got away with the idea, oh yeah, getting rid of the CO2 is a social good. All we do is sell into the market. It makes no sense. The, the, the technology exists. Whether it will work is not really the question. The real question is, a bit like peak oil, is what will it cost? How much will it cost them to actually get rid of CO2 permanently and safely? And we don't know that because we're not requiring them to do it. But isn't that, isn't that um, solved by having the right price, which takes account of the externalities? In other words, you know exactly what it is that you're, you're doing. And that will encourage all the other things to happen. But I agree entirely that you know, we've been looking at that for ages. I, you know, I used to work for the government over a decade ago. Um, uh, there was just, it wasn't, it didn't look viable. Of course, you can subsidize it or you can make them pay if you want. Oh, take it, get, why don't, don't we use windfall taxes constantly? I don't want them to make them pay. I want to make them do it. I, I don't think a carbon, a carbon tax doesn't cut it because then people just pay the carbon tax and avoid solving the problem. I don't want people to pay to pollute. Case, I want them to clean up. Isn't at the right price if that is the case. Unfortunately, it will in, not be. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about now, but the pr proper global carbon tax would do an awful lot to sort that out. It will help, but it won't stop fossil fuels causing global warming, because if we actually look at the, 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 the models which actually get us to net zero, by the time we get to net zero, we're paying carbon taxes which are much higher than the cost of capturing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and re-injecting it back underground, which is weird. Why do the carbon taxes go that high? Well, the answer is because we don't build the plants in these models to get rid of the CO2. And that's almost certainly going to happen because we're not building it. Nobody's got any incentive to build it because nobody nobody's being required to build it. With all of these things and the... I agree that the price mechanism has a role to play. I absolutely do not believe that it is singularly at all that will get us to where we need to go. Um, and given some of the practical difficulties, and I defer to my colleague in the New Weather Institute, Professor Bill Maguire, who is an expert in geoengineering and, and carbon sequestration issues, who thinks that uh, the amount of time it would take to get to a position, even under a best case scenario, is not going to allow us to meet the climate targets and has a wide range of extremely difficult problems to do with it. And given that, I think Quite obviously, the easiest thing is simply not to put the carbon into the atmosphere or burn the fossil fuels in the first place. And even though I think there are some big structural interventions that we could make that can kind of be game shifters in the way that Miles is talking, um, it is also obviously quite a complicated picture because there are certain things which are very fossil fuel intensive, such as flying, which are not amenable to a shift. If you look at the aviation industry's plans to change, they have this kind of slightly fantasy um, net zero plan, which involves, um, in order to deliver on it, first of all, you'd have to trust that some of the offset mechanisms, which are scientifically unproven and frankly, really very dodgy, would have to work. Secondly, you'd have to believe that the aviation industry could have every drop of biofuel already produced in the world times three and that the land used to grow those fuels would not be in competition with land to grow food for people or with the biodiversity that we need for healthy functioning ecosystems. So overwhelmingly, the simplest thing to do is to reduce demand and have the measures which prevent us from putting the fossil fuels in the atmosphere in the first place. Whilst at the same time, working out 
how we can hold the industry to account, give it full um, liability, responsibility for its product, which I agree would be a wonderful thing. But there are things we need to do in the here and now, because the science is telling us that if we do not get on a rapid downward curve now, we will be dancing on the edge of losing an atmosphere which is convivial for human civilization. So apart from whenever aviation. you say that, it always sounds really grandiose, but sometimes I think we lose sight of how we're dancing on the edge of losing. We've already gone beyond the point of the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere in which human civilization emerged. And we're dancing on the edge of triggering potentially irreversible feedback mechanisms in which we will lose our capacity to hold orderly, organized civilizations together. So, sorry, that sounds a bit large scale, but I believe those are the stakes that we're playing with. Can I ask, apart from aviation, but you cut it so we don't fly anymore, how would you reduce this energy demand? I mean, the energy growth demand is, is expected to grow and continue to grow in the foreseeable future. In fact, to double uh, at a certain time in, in, in a few decades. So, so how do we get around that? Presently? Well, there are these things called demand reduction measures. And there, there was a plan no that growth? we had back in 2008, which was green for the, for the Green New Deal, which um, would have seen investments, which, I mean, the trick you've got to pull off, of course, is how do you stimulate positive economic activity, which um, ticks three boxes in my view. One is reducing our ecological impact. The second is reversing the inequality that we see in our economies, because in more equal economies, in more equal societies, all problems are easier to um, solve. And the third thing is generally improving our well-being. Now, we came up with the Green New Deal as a way of hitting um, all those problems simultaneously. Uh, the best we got out of what was the then Labour government was um, uh, you could cash in your boiler and there was a kind of a cash for conquers deal with, you, with your cars as well. There was a huge missed opportunity and we keep missing these opportunities. And the opportunity is there to target the UK's social agenda, its levelling up agenda, to deal with its energy profligacy because we have some of the most inefficient and wasteful and badly insulated housing stock in any advanced economy. So I, I think there's so much low-hanging fruit in which we could reduce consumption that it just seems to me a madness that we're not plucking it. Another question. Yes. What do you think of the... Oh, sorry, very loud. Um, what do you think of the notion that uh, scientists are often quite bad at political campaigns? For, so, for example, in the 1980s, when the idea of the greenhouse effect was first introduced, um, I read one writer who said that kind of gave you a flowery idea instead of a microwave effect where you would imagine everyone boiling to death, which would be far more effective. And do you think that after COVID, with scientists like Jonathan Van Tam being at the forefront do you think that they're getting better at appealing to um, wider society or do you think that they're still quite bad at uh, persuading people? It's a, it's a really it's a really good question. Uh, and I, I should fess up to another little hat. One of my other little hats is as assistant director of a group called Scientists for Global Responsibility. And they work on these kind of climate related issues. And I think if you speak to people in the scientific in the scientific world, they would um, tell you that perhaps they have not always been the best communicators. Um, and that um, perhaps if you look at some of the critiques of the, the discourses which have happened within the idea PCC. There's been a nervousness and a caution about perhaps talking about some of the bigger implications of not acting. I think you see the language of that changing consistently now. In fact, I was really struck when the IPCC's Working Group 3 report came out 
just the other day. The, 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 the language at the launch was extraordinary. Like the, 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 the head of the World Meteorological Organization, Pateri Tala, said, our atmosphere is on steroids, doped on fossil fuels. You had the head, you know, the Secretary General of the United Nations saying that the abdication of leadership on climate is criminal and delay means death. So I think there's been an upping of the ante and understanding that that's the case. And there is a thing called the Science Oath for Climate, which scientists for global responsibility have been pushing, whereby scientists are now committing to two things, working on both system and behavior change. So pledging themselves to make changes in their own lives, leading by example. And there's a lot of research that says that the climate science is listened to much more so when the people who are talking about it are visibly acting on their own advice. But they're also asking them to speak to their professional organizations and make sure that they are 1.5, you know, pathway aligned as well. So that you've got both behavior and system change positively reinforcing each other. But it's a really live debate. I mean, if you saw the Extinction Rebellion demonstrations recently, there were scientists gluing themselves, you know, to bait. So um, I think there is a shift going on in the community. But I would say that, I mean, scientists are quite, uh... Uh, trusted right now. So if you look at the list of, of who you trust, it seems that the, the, the chief scientific advisor seems to be right at the top. So it's pretty good. Good, But in terms of the government actually uh, acting, uh, I think economists have contributed very significantly, if I may say, you know, mention something good about economists uh, <laughs> in this environment, um, which, you know, frankly, when Nick Stern did the first calculation of the cost of uh, not dealing with climate change, that was when people sort of woke up including this government. Yes, perhaps they haven't done anything very much that we'd all like them to do. Um, but it is uh, explaining quite clearly that the cost, without any flowery terms, um, uh, that the cost of leaving it to later is going to be so huge uh, that has got people energised and, and, and acting. So I think, I think I don't think economists are particularly good at communicating either generally, but um, maybe they're slightly better than the scientists in terms of, oh, no, perhaps not, perhaps not. Well, I mean, speaking for myself, I've been advocating extended producer responsibility for fossil fuel producers for 12 years now and made zero progress. So um, <laughs> there you are. Um, but uh, uh, am I getting any better at it? Well, uh, results don't suggest, uh, but, you know, um, I, 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 I keep saying it. Um, I, I, more generally, um, I think climate scientists, climate researchers generally um, have a, a lot to answer for in terms of complexifying this problem. Um, it's actually not a very complicated problem, but it increases the power of the academic community to pretend that it is, because then people have to listen to us and listen to our elaborate proposals for how the problem should be addressed. Um, and, and, you know, that, that, that is, uh, you should recognize that incentive is there. And so when an academic shakes his head and says, well, you really don't understand, you know, this, this is a really very complicated problem, probe them on that. It, really, is it that complicated? So, so I, I think that's, that's where we've done badly. That, that said, there are some good news stories. Occasionally we've realized things were simpler than we thought, and that's had a lot of impact. And, and it's worth reminding you that the papers that showed that 50 to 80% reductions in CO2 emissions wasn't going to be enough to stop global warming. We were going to have to get to net zero. Those papers were published in 2009. And that reality was acknowledged, a very uncomfortable reality was acknowledged 
in the Paris Agreement in 2015. That's six years. And that's a phenomenal achievement on, on the part of not only the policy community, but also the global scientific community and the IPCC process and so on, in terms of carrying that rather uncomfortable science through to its policy conclusion. So some things have gone better than they might have done, but I think where we've always succeeded has been when we point out that things are simple and we haven't done a very good job of doing that all through. And just to put one footnote, a positive footnote, and uh, um, if you pop onto rapidtransition.org, you will find lots and lots of actual examples of things which have happened quickly in the kind of period of time that we need to see things happening now. And we talk very much about evidence-based hope. So if we could join all those dots, um, extraordinary things could happen. And it's absolutely without doubt been well communicated that the costs of inaction are higher than the costs of, of actual action. And my favorite question, one for the economists, um, I, I like to pose this in, in terms of why I think we need to deal with the whole sort of dem demand reduction issues and, and absolute limits rather than relying upon some of the more conventional economic toolboxes that as a, as, a, as a thought exercise, what price would you put on the marginal ton of carbon, which if burnt, triggered irreversible climate destabilization. And even if you could come up with a figure, should anybody be allowed to pay it? I'm going to stop there because, uh, <laughs> before Vicky is required to answer that. But I think um, Andrew, Vicky and Miles have been a fabulous panel. They've, they've, um, they've brought three very different perspectives. Um, it's been fantastic Thank listening you. to them. Thank you.